today on Ag News Daily. So those are real numbers, and I think those are the ones that finally seemed to reflect the reality of 2019. You know, throughout 2019, I think there was some doubt or frustration with USDA's projections. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's another Ag News Daily podcast, and it's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, it is certainly a Monday here for me. What about you? Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I... I struggle with my days of the week, especially now during harvest, was out at the farm this weekend shooting some drone footage, and that just kind of makes my days blur together even more. So today doesn't really feel like any particular day in in general, but I guess it is a Monday and we're chatting markets today with Elaine Cub. So it's definitely a Monday here on the podcast. Absolutely. And one thing that I want to talk about here on this Monday is, of course, the wildfires that have been going on in California, and they are hitting wine country. And, you know, I we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but I am a wine drinker. I, I like to drink wine. And, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting that I hadn't thought of is, you know, these fires are hurting, you know, farmland and specifically the vineyards. But I read a little article today, and I'll I'll read this little excerpt here. But when smoke is absorbed into a vine and concentrates in the fruit, it alters a grape's chemistry and ultimately its taste, leaving some wines with ashtray aromas that may appear during fermentation or even as late as after bottling, which is definitely not something that that I had thought about. I had just thought about these fires hurting these these farmlands, but I didn't even think about how it is impacting wine country and the grapes that are going on the vines right now. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I, I wouldn't maybe have thought about it like that, but I guess it makes sense. Uh, yeah, we'll have to do a little more digging into that. I, I So, I mean, I used to work at a winery and vineyard. That's been a, almost 10 years ago now. So my knowledge in that industry is kind of lacking a little bit, but I guess to me, it makes sense that it could acquire or absorb some of that flavor. But I I guess I was thinking less so on the grape side and more so on the wine side, just because like when you are making wine, you can put in different tannins or chips or things that give it a flavor. And so I could see it acquiring a smoky flavor there, but I guess I hadn't considered it from the grape perspective. Neither had I. And, you know, my knowledge on wine isn't very vast or or anything like that, but I definitely want to keep my eye out on this industry because I I have a, a feeling that they might be hurting once these wildfires do get tamed. Yeah, I agree. And I hope we don't have a wine shortage. I'm also a wine drinker. I doubt we will. But uh, I guess if you're a big wine drinker, maybe it's time for you to stock up. I don't know. Maybe, Delaney. But uh, other than that, what kind of news are you looking out for today? Well, I'm I'm still continuing to watch what's going on with the phase one trade agreement here between the United States and China. And I have a little bit of clarity to add. So I talked about last week on the podcast that – you know, the phase one here was really broken up into two years worth of trade commitment purchases. And those indeed do run by a calendar year, not the marketing year. So this first year of the phase one trade agreement, they have till December 31st to complete those purchases. However, it's still being rumored that China will not meet their promise to buy about $38 billion worth of agricultural goods. We've seen U.S. Soybean Export Council CEO Jim Sutter tell 
different reporters. He's confident that China will not be able to meet their demand or meet their promise. And we also saw Secretary Purdue say that he is feel not feeling so confident that they're going to make it, but he said that they are trying. So we have to give them some credit for that. And so uh, let's see. So far, Chinese imports of U.S. agricultural products totaled $8.6 billion from January to July. And again, they need to get about $36.5 billion to meet their phase one year one trade agreement here. So they've got about $30 billion worth of goods to purchase here before December. So it's probably highly unlikely that those things are indeed going to follow through. Well, Delaney, you know, it, it kind of stinks to hear that we're kind of not looking at China going through with all these purchases, but I'm glad that we got a little bit of clarity there about the calendar year and the marketing year. But another thing that I've been keeping my eye out on today is a research project that has been conducted and published in the Nature Communications Journal saying climate change could render land used for agricultural practices useless for farming. The profits of growing six key crops, including barley, corn, cotton, soybeans, rice, and wheat are set to fall almost a third by 2070. And again, that is the research that was found in this, this project published in the Nature Communications Journal. However, up to half of the losses could be reduced by switching crops or relocating fields. The research concluded that corn would become less concentrated in the Midwest, while wheatlands in the Great Plains would see a gradual hollowing out. Soybean production would also have to shift north, and it was also predicted that cotton would likely be grown further north and would become the dominant crop in Southern California. And I think the purpose of this study was to make an attempt at being more aware of what could happen and really find out what farmers can do, not only to increase yield and crop quality, but what they can do from a sustainability standpoint. And it was very interesting to me to, to read about all these things because they really focused on increasing temperatures and, and that kind of thing and how it is going to affect crops. And so I, I, you know, might put this in our newsletter later this week so folks can really read into it. But I definitely thought it was one of the more interesting pieces of news on the day. Yeah, I tell you what, it's been a little bit of a slower news day again today, other than just some news of President Trump dealing with COVID. We saw over the weekend that he uh, had some Secret Service folks drive him out and about so he could still kind of make his face seen amongst the public, so to speak. But markets haven't really reacted to that news again, much other than really what they reacted end of last week. So I tell you what, Ashton, should we chat markets? Let's go ahead and do it, Delaney. Well, like I mentioned, really didn't see a lot of reaction following into the weekend today of either, you know, President Trump's announcement of COVID and or the quarterly stocks report. And we're going to talk about all of that and more coming up here in just a moment with the Lane Cub. But let's do a quick run through here of where the markets ended on the day. Starting off in the December corn contract down a quarter of a cent to close at 379 and a half. The March unchanged to close at 3. 
89 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, slight gains on the day as the November contract closed up three quarters of a cent to close at 1021 and a half. The January putting on just a quarter of a cent to close at 1025. In the wheat pits, December contract adding 11 cents today to close at 584 and a quarter. The March up 10 and three quarters cent to close at 590 and a quarter. Livestock also had some green on the screen today as the October live cattle contract added 65 cents to close at 108.82. The December adding 65 cents as well to close at 111.75. In the feeder cattle pits, the October contract up 15 cents on the day to close at 140.05. November up just a pen- up just a nickel to close at 139.92 and a half. In the lean hog pits, the October contract adding a quarter to close at 74.75. The December up 15 cents to close at 62.65. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, October contract adding 44 cents today to close at 20.62. The November up 40 as well to close at 19.76. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Elaine Cub. Well, as promised for today's Hashtag Market Monday discussion, chatting with Elaine Cub. And Elaine, it's been quite some time since we've had you on the podcast, but glad to have you back on again. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the markets, they keep on a churning no matter what. That is true. They certainly do. And, you know, we had the quarterly grain stocks report out last week. Is your What's your sentiment here moving forward? Is that just a temporary bullish news for the markets, if you will? I think the the price movement, uh, I don't think there's going to be long-lasting new highs necessarily from that, but the the implications of that quarterly grain stocks report will be with us for the rest of the marketing years um, going into 2021. And that, you know, that's pretty important, actually. You know, sometimes these, these monthly supply and demand estimates, those do feel temporary and they feel sort of uh, made up, right? Like they, they're, they're the result of economists in Washington, D.C. or Kansas City or wherever, you know, plugging numbers into an equation and coming up with a projection. So those, those do feel kind of temporary. But the quarterly grain stocks reports are, in my opinion, more important government reports because they are audited real measurements of physical grain that is in inventory in commercial storage and in on-farm storage. So those are real numbers. And I think those are the ones that finally seemed to reflect the reality of 2019. You know, throughout 2019, I think there was some doubt or frustration with USDA's projections of what production was during that very challenging year of weather. And now finally, we've gotten enough of these uh, measurements of what grain is really in existence anymore that I think we're starting to reflect reality. Yeah, I I think that's interesting you mentioned that, reflecting reality. But do you think, I guess, how long will these reality reflections last? Maybe that's a bad way to put it, but hopefully you understand what I'm asking. No, I I gotcha. And uh, I think, like I mentioned, so... On the on the charts or from day to day, you know, today we're we're seeing grain up maybe two cents or flat. You know, nothing's really happening. We're not seeing a day to day reaction to that report every day. You know, there's not a trend that has been set because of those new numbers. However, when we go into you know later this week, when there's the new supply and demand estimates for the marketing year going forward, they've got to look back 
at what inventory there really is and and include the the newly increased usage uh, implications from it you know that we're that we're eating we're feeding more of the physical grain the, the whole corn grain or ground corn to animals rather than ddgs because of the lower ethanol scenario for instance they've got to take all those implications from the grain stocks report into future reports or into future supply and demand tables so there's the chance that a month down the road or two months down the road, we will still be feeling the implications of that grain stocks report. But Delaney, to answer your question about the day-to-day movement of prices, no, I don't think that this is this is going to be a big thing that changes the trend. Well, Elaine, let's talk uh, the December corn contract here because we did see after that report, we put in a new high for the December charts. Is there any reason that we shouldn't break through that high into seeing another one? Sure, it's entirely possible. I mean, I don't think there's any any magic number there. I think the timing of it is, is more the scenario when we've got harvest going on. Once you kind of hit the mid of harvest, that tends to be when you see either a low or a high <clears throat> just in the time frame. You know, typically it's a low at harvest, but this year the commercial side of the market seems to not be seeing as much grain or not being seeing as much grain sold to them as they typically like to see. So we've got strong basis pretty much everywhere, especially being led by the export prices at the ports and going into Mexico. Strong basis everywhere, pretty strong futures prices, a good scenario for folks who just want to sell off the combine. But the timing of that, once you get through about the halfway point of harvest, then then that mechanism seems to fade away. Yeah, I don't know about you, Elaine, but I've been hearing from a lot of farmers that they were nervous to sell ahead just because they had storm damage or drought damage or whatever and and didn't maybe have as many bushels priced ahead of time or in the flip scenario had a lot priced and now are now dealing with the potential of not being able to fill those contracts. Have you heard similar stories from farmers? Well, very much. And just behaviorally, that is the number one uh, stumbling block to pre-harvest marketing. You know, you don't want to lock in a price because you don't know that you'll have the bushels. And this year in Iowa with that derecho damage, you know, that that turned out to be a, a legitimate concern. Um, you know, if you if you're in a scenario where you have to try and get out of bushels previously sold, I I have not heard of very many people having that happen to them in 2020, which is good because that can tend to be a mess. There can tend to be fees uh, that you have to deal with with your elevator, but it hasn't happened too much. I think I think the scenario is more your first scenario where folks are coming into the market with perhaps grain that is unsold because they didn't sell it ahead of time, which means that they have the beautiful scenario of just spotting out loads at harvest at a pretty favorable price or at a profitable price, which is rare and, you know, kind of fun. Yeah, it has been really fun, especially I think for the soybean market, seeing it finally break above $10 for the first time, I think since 2018, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, what are you seeing there long term for soybeans? We've seen this pop up in the markets, definitely been demand driven, you know, the quarterly stocks report helps with all of that, I think. But long term, what are you seeing? Yeah, it is fun, isn't it? Uh, you take soybeans to the elevators, spot them out at 10 bucks or whatever, and, and that's great. But I think, Delaney, that a lot of folks are getting really bold up and they, they want to see $11. They want to see 12 You know, they think that this trend is going higher, higher, higher. And there is fundamental bullishness for soybeans because of the export tightness. And because if you start to incorporate projections for stronger exports and the knowledge that we now have of the lower inventories, existing inventories of soybeans, you start to get some pretty tight supply and demands or 
some some tight ending stocks projections, which is bullish. I mean, that there's there's no question of that. That fundamentally the market is bullish. However, I don't. I want to caution people from feeling really bullish and in a sense that they wouldn't want to sell at these prices, because at some point, let's say February, March, there will be another probably big South American crop coming onto the market. So you've got between now and February, I think that you can enjoy this bullishness, but it's not indefinite. It's never going to be permanent. You've got to be able to have a plan to sell that sometime, either now at harvest or in the next few months before you've paid a bunch of storage on it. Yeah. I elaborate and paint a picture for us, Elaine. If we do see South American weather troubles, what does that do for our demand or our uh, supplies moving forward? Uh, yeah. Well, if we do see South American troubles, then I guess take back what I said about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could be off and running to $11, $12, who knows? But if, if, there, if La Nina problems in South America persist, past the planting season and into the growing season and you really start to have uh, yield concerns because acreage is not going to be a concern. They're going to plant as much of it as they possibly can. They're very motivated to buy the prices and buy their currency. But if yield starts to become a concern, then it's not just U.S. ending stocks that get tight. It's global ending stocks that get tight. And yes, the, the U.S. will continue to see this a uh, hefty pace of export sales that we've been seeing lately, that would probably continue through January and potentially into February, which is unusual. And it would, um, you know, yeah, keep our prices, our local prices and basis prices very favorable. But at this point, I, you know, I don't think we should bank on that. Yeah, definitely not. Elaine, I want to talk wheat here for a second. Today, they had a pretty nice little move up here. And uh, where, where do you see that going long term? You know, it, wheat doesn't have this sort of seasonal predictability that, that the row crop markets do. So it's hard to say we're headed towards a specific time frame when something would hit an inflection point. I think then the day-to-day the -day movements, when you do see double up, double digit days up like we are seeing here on Monday, those are probably related to export business or you know, algorithmic trade when you see the dollar moving down as it is today a little bit. Now, the dollar is not moving down to some fresh low, but that is something to keep in mind as we go forward towards, you know, early November. There's likely to be just lots of volatility in traders' projections for what the global economy or the U.S. economy or the U.S. election, what all of that volatility could come in. And that's going to be reflected in the dollar. And the wheat, and the wheat market does tend to be pretty sensitive to movements in the dollar. And Elaine, speaking of the dollar, I almost forgot to ask, you know, we saw President Trump announce that he has COVID as of the end of last week and saw markets react uh, not so favorably to that noise. What, I mean, is that just a short-term risk reaction or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, any, any sort of risk, like you mentioned, any sort of volatility will send people you know, into safe haven assets or selling off risky assets, which can be bearish to commodity prices. But <clears throat> assuming that all goes well with President Trump, with his recovery and his, and his, you know, medical care that he receives, you know, I think that's something that the markets can brush off. But 
from day to day, any sort of change in the prospects for who might win, people try to hang market movements on that, but it's not really rational because no historical statistical study has been able to prove that the stock market, for instance, does any better when there's a Democrat or a Republican or an incumbent versus a challenger. There's there's never really any predictable way to know that the stock market is going to do better with one versus the other. There's just individual investors' judgment of whether one candidate will be better for trade or one candidate will be better for just uh, a lack of unpredictability, just a more predictable business environment. So that that's up to individual traders. There's, there's no way to really know for sure. And that's for the stock market, Delaney. So we don't even mm. have a way to predict that for the stock market. And there's even less of a predictable relationship for commodities. I'd say that the, the presidential campaign election stuff is is almost impossible to tie to the commodity price movements up or down one way or the other. Interesting. I feel like people try to connect it. And I I mean, it seems strange to be able to try and connect, you know, the outcome of a presidential election to what's going to happen in the markets. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that and brought that up. Yeah, there's always theories, right, that an incumbent would have less volatility because the, or they are going to make more changes. They have more legislative power. I mean, there's there are various theories about how it will go, but anytime somebody tries to go back with historical data and prove those theories, they never they never really seem to pan out predictably. So yeah, especially for the grain markets. I mean, that's it, it's there's just no good way to tie that together. Well, Elaine, before I let you go, of course, you are author of Mastering the Grain Markets. But if folks want to get in contact with you, read your book or just chat about the markets, how can they do that? You know, Twitter is a good way to get a hold of me. I am at Elaine Cub. Cub is spelled with a K, like a Chicago Cub, but with a K. And yeah, I always like to hear from folks there. Fantastic. Well, Elaine, thanks so much for chatting markets today. Glad to have you back. Glad to talk to you, Delaney. Well, again, a big thank you there to Elaine for chatting markets with us today. Always appreciate her coming on and doing so. Absolutely. And we are always grateful for the wonderful guests that we have on the Ag News Daily podcast, which you can check out on our website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.